Thanks, Tim, very much. Well, it is a great joy to be here. Uh, we brought a Cornhill mission team. We think it, we've been talking, some of us who remember it, uh, about probably 13, 14, 15 years ago, a team of students came and worked with the church family at that time. And uh, I, I don't think I've been back since then, so it's, it's great to be here and very good to see you all this evening. And especially to have this evening and next week uh, looking at these two areas of biblical understanding, opening up the Bible. Next week, we're going to look at the first 11 chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 to 11, which has been rightly, I think, called the seedbed of the Bible. So we're going to be looking at some of the big themes there and then tracing a few of them on through Scripture. But tonight, we're doing a bird's eye view, which, uh, as you'll see on the sheet in front of you, we've got three big questions to ask. Why, why the Bible? Why do we need it? What's it all about? What's it for? How do we use it? And then thirdly, what do we discover when we do use it? Well, obviously, in 35, 40 minutes, can't possibly cover anything but a sort of surface view, a bird's eye view, if you like, from way up. But uh, hopefully it will stimulate you to want to pick up some things that may especially um, appeal to you or challenge you or um, new areas that you want to explore for yourself. And uh, I hope it will stimulate us all to get into the Bible for ourselves um, more and more. Because it is an extraordinary thing that in a generation like ours, when we probably have more Bible helps available in more sorts of form, like not only books, but uh, throughout the internet and many, many uh, courses and um, uh, lectures and uh, sermons and so on, lots of material about the Bible, that probably it's still true to say that the Bible is the least read world's bestseller. It's always up the top there in the selling lists all around the world and many, many people have a Bible on a shelf somewhere in their house. But although the Bible is so readily available, there is a sort of increasing biblical illiteracy, really, and sometimes within our churches as much as anywhere else. I remember doing um, a mission at Cambridge University a few years back now, and uh, talking to a young man afterwards who wasn't at all a Christian, he said to me, well, of course, the problem for me is the Bible. And I said, okay, well, what sort of problem? Well, Genesis. So I said, oh, yes, you mean the problem of creation? No, no, I don't mean that. No, that, that Noah story. Oh, you don't believe there was a flood? No, no, I, I'm perfectly prepared to believe there was a flood. What I don't believe is the bit where when he comes out of the ark, he picks up stones and throws them over his shoulder and they turn into human beings. That's what I don't believe. Well, I could hardly believe my good fortune at that point. <laughs> so I said, shall we turn it up? And you see, here's a guy, intelligent guy, thoughtful guy, interested but with total uh, fictional view of the Bible. And I think that's the problem with many, many people. It's certainly true that the poverty of some of our Christian living and the uh, paucity of our impact on our society is directly related to our lack of knowledge of God. And the, and the knowledge of God is very dependent upon God's revelation to us in the Bible. So what we're doing, I think, is absolutely foundational and if it's familiar material, well, um, do rejoice that these things are so. And if it's some of it not so familiar, I hope it will be a stimulus to you. I always think it's important to explode two myths. First of all, the myth that the Bible is mysterious, that it's only for experts. That is not true. If you can read the newspaper, you can read the Bible. Of course, the Bible is like an ocean, uh, an ocean in which children can paddle and in which a whale a huge whale can luxuriate. 
by which I mean to say that there are all sorts of levels and depths in the Bible. But if you're in the shallows, if you're a child paddling just in the, in the uh, beach waves, then you're still in the Bible. It's still the Word of God. So start where you can, but aim to go deeper, because you'll never get to the depths of it all. Um, no one lifetime could possibly do that. And anyway, it is God's book, and it's going to have a capacity of being infinite uh, in a way that we are not, which will always mean that we can't necessarily get to the very depths of the meaning, but there is so much there that we can get. So it's not a mysterious book. You don't have to have a, a qualification in first century Greco-Roman history, or you don't have to be able to um, uh, read the Hebrew and the Greek. We are very privileged in our generation to have such excellent modern translations of the Bible. It's not a mysterious book, and it's not a remote book, because people seem to think that it is removed from our world, and um, isn't it, after all, at least 2,000 years ago, and wasn't it most of it written, or a lot of it written in a Jewish context, and those things are not true in our context in 21st century London. But of course, the Bible is full of life. It's full of real people. It's full of real people facing the same sorts of human struggles and concerns that we face. And uh, while the cultural setting will be different, they wore different clothes from us, and the cultural setting is a different clothing than ours, but the humanity of it, and of course the unchanging nature of God, who by definition does not change, means that there's a straight line from God in the Bible to God now, and there's a straight line from his dealing with people then to his dealing with us now. So we're not looking at something that's remote and distant from us. This is not an academic exercise in ancient history. So, well with that uh, precursor, why then is the Bible here at all? And uh, why do we need it? Well, let me put it this way. If there is an infinite God, then we are in need of revelation. Because the ultimate question is, why should we believe anything about anything? How do you assess what is right or what is wrong, what is true or what is erroneous? How do you come to any sort of value judgments about anything? Well, of course, in our culture, there would be lots of different answers, what most people think, what the experts say, uh, what um, tradition uh, dictates, or what is the most opposed to tradition, and therefore the most cutting edge and different. But all those sorts of answers are entirely human. They're limited because they're human. They're transient because they're human. And if there are no fixed points and no absolutes in the world, then, of course, there is no real ground for truth. Uh, Sartre was right um, when he said in the middle of the 20th century, finite man is meaningless without an infinite reference point. And of course he didn't believe there was any infinite reference point, so life is meaningless, hence the existential angst of life without a God. But the only ground for truth, with any sort of capital T, any sort of absolute truth, is a divine being, a creator God, who is outside of us. But if he is there, how would we ever know if this God did not reveal himself to us? We are utterly dependent on revelation. If the God that the Bible describes is to be a real God, we couldn't possibly find him by our own unaided intellect. I mean, think of it this way. You might like to make the queen your personal friend. You might not, but you might like to. How would you go about it? 
I mean, you could try all sorts of strategies, couldn't you? Turn up at Buckingham Palace and wave regularly and send her notes and flowers and presents, and the special branch would soon have you on their list. <laughs> you can't get to know the Queen unless the Queen wants to get to know you and me. She hasn't yet seen the purpose of doing that, so I don't know her. Well, if that's true of an earthly monarch, how much more true is it of an infinite God? How could you ever possibly come to know an infinite God? unless he deigned to reveal himself to us. How is he going to do that? In his creation, yes, but even more precisely, in the words that he speaks. And because he's a speaking God, in fact, the only God who speaks because he's the only living God, the words he, say, he says are the heart of the revelation that we need if ever, as creatures of God, we're going to come into relationship with this God for ourselves. Because, you see, if I could climb up to God by my own unaided intellectual powers, then the God that I reach is going to be smaller than the capacity of my mind. And he is not worthy of the title God. You've got to have something from outside. There's got to be revelation coming through to us from God himself if this idea that there might be a God who is infinite and yet personal can ever really make sense to us, if we can ever enter into it. So he's beyond human recognition, he's beyond human invention, but there is the possibility that if this God exists and he is a personal infinite being, he could reveal himself to us in a way that is always valid, always true, but which is likely to be revealing his words and his actions. So number two, God reveals himself by what he does and what he says, and that's the biblical paradigm. It's true of us, isn't it? I mean, I don't know most of you this evening, but if we had a little while together individually, you and I would get to know one another. We would reveal ourselves to one another by what we say and what we do. That's how we make friends. That's how we develop relationships. It's all about our actions and about our words. And getting to know God is no different. That's why the Bible is so full of God's activity and God's explanation of that activity. Let's go to a Bible passage, because I want to uh, root it in Scripture itself. If you turn to the second letter of Peter, chapter 1, there's a great section there which helps us to see just how this works out in a really practical way. So, Second Peter, chapter 1. And uh, we'll pick it up at verse 16. What's happening is that Peter is defending the gospel against people who are... Uh, saying that Jesus is never going to return, you've believed a whole load of myths, the thing is just uh, untenable. And he says in 2 Peter 1.16, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Now, what I want us to see is the way that this passage shows us how revelation works. This is why we need the Bible. Peter, you see, is, well, he says he's two things, doesn't he? He says in verse 16, he's an eyewitness of the majesty of our Lord Jesus the Christ. And he says in verse 18, he is an ear witness 
of the voice of God the Father from heaven. So he's talking about something that God did, first of all, of which he is an eyewitness. That is an event which is described in verse 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's what he's talking about. He saw Jesus receive honor and glory from God the Father. And then as the ear witness, he heard the voice that came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard his voice. So look at my little uh, equation there. Event plus explanation equals revelation. See, the event is the transfiguration. We were eyewitnesses. The explanation is the voice from heaven. This is my son. I'm well pleased with him. And the event and the explanation together constitute the revelation, that this is not some cleverly invented story, but the reality of the power and parousia, that is the second coming, the first coming in power and the second coming, as verse 16 says, of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw, we heard. That's why you can have confidence. The apostolic testimony is our grounding of confidence in the gospel. Now, it works like that all the way through the Bible. God does things and God explains them. See, the Bible is God preaching God to us. The Bible is God revealing himself to us the whole time. We tend to think the Bible's got to be about us, but the Bible is about God long before it's about us. It's going to impact our lives in all sorts of ways if we take it seriously, but it wasn't written to us in the sense of us being the people who were addressed in the first times that these truths were written down or spoken. We listen in, and we know uh, why that is important, because the message is as relevant for us as it was for them, but the way it works is you see God in action, you see God's explanation, and the two are the revelation. Think of another famous verse. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. See the formula? Event. Christ died. Yeah, but if you don't know why he died, it's purposeless, isn't it? You could see a crucifix outside a church and somebody might say, oh, that's the heart of the Christian faith. What does that mean? We have to go on a crucifix? Who's dying there? Just the event itself is not sufficient revelation. But when you add the explanation, Christ died for our sins, then you get the revelation. If you've just got the explanation and there's no real death, if the Muslims are right when they say Christ was substituted and he didn't really die on the cross, then of course you have no revelation. You've just got a, a nice idea that there might be an atoning sacrifice for sin, but if there's no event, nothing happens. It doesn't work got to have the event and the explanation to constitute the revelation. Now, the, record, the written record then um, of what God has done and what God has said and the implications of that, as we shall see in a moment, that written record addresses the whole person of the reader. It addresses my mind and my heart and my will. In fact, the way that the Bible usually works is to go through the mind to the heart in order to change the will. Sometimes it starts with the heart, and the heart then uh, informs the mind. It doesn't have to be always in that order, but usually, if the Bible's going to do us any good, we have to understand its truth with our mind, we have to receive its truth in our heart, and we have to apply its truth in practice in our lives. 
Now, let me give you just two Bible passages. We'll quickly have a look at them to see how that happens. One in the Old Testament, one in the New, so that we can see it's the same principle in both. In the book of Deuteronomy, which is, of course, the second giving of the law, just before the Jews are going to go into the Promised Land, the Israelites have come out of Egypt. They've been 40 years in the desert. And Moses is about to die, but before he dies, he commissions them. He preaches to them a whole series of sermons in Deuteronomy. And in chapter 6, uh, he has this to say. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, that's Yahweh, Jehovah, if you like, our God, the Lord is one. Now that name, the Lord, is the name that God gives to his people, the special revelation name of his character. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. See how the mind and the heart is involved in understanding what God is saying, what it is he's uh, saying about our responsibilities to him, love the Lord your God. And these commandments are to be on your heart. The heart is the control center of the personality. That's where you decide what you're going to do. But also in your mind so that your thinking and your conversation is animated by God's revelation to us. So that was the case even in the Old Testament before most of the Bible was written, only five books at the most, Deuteronomy's number five. But in the New Testament, of course, it's a bit clearer when you come to the second letter to Timothy, which Paul writes to um, the pastor in the church at Ephesus, where he's um, been left by Paul to build up God's people. And he says in 2 Timothy 3.14, do look this one up with me, because it's, uh, I think, quite an important uh, foundation. As for you, he says to Timothy, continue in what you have learned, verse 14, and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learnt it, and how from infancy you've known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And then he says, the charge to this young man in ministry is, verse 2, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. So what's he saying? Well, he's really giving us the Bible's job description, isn't he? What's the Bible there for? In verse uh, 15, it's there to make you wise for salvation as you put your faith in the Lord Jesus. So the Bible is the means by which we come to encounter Christ, by which we learn that he is the Messiah, Jesus, the Lord, and by which through faith we come to salvation. The Bible's great work is to save us, to rescue us, by bringing us to put our faith in the Lord Jesus as Savior and Lord and God. But what does it do once you're a Christian? Well, have a look at the next verse. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, 
in order to make, now the man of God here is probably a technical term for the pastor teacher, but it isn't exclusive to the pastor teacher, it's true of every Christian, to make us ready and thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we need the Bible because it is God-breathed. God breathes out his mind in his word and all scripture is profitable because all scripture is God-breathed. Everything in his word is given to us for our teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That's why preaching the word is the center of the church's ministry and why we need to, with great patience and careful instruction, encourage one another, true in our house groups, our, our life groups, uh, true in every discipleship class. It is the word of God that's at work. So at the end of point one, the spirit of God takes the word of God to do the work of God. And there is no division between the spirit and the word. Sometimes people used to say, oh, I'm a spirit Christian, he's a word Christian. It's a nonsense, that. You cannot be a Christian without the spirit of God taking the word of God to do the work of God in your life. And we need the Bible as the written word of God so that as the spirit of God takes it and opens our minds to its truth and softens our hearts to its message, and strengthens our will to put it into practice, we grow up into Christ and we become stronger, more mature as Christians and we develop our knowledge and therefore our love of the God who has called us to himself. So then, how do we use it? Well, let me ask you, if your life was compared to a car, where in the car is the Bible? I think for a lot of Christians, the Bible's in the boot. You know, I don't know what you've got in the boot of your car. I'm not sure that I know what's in the boot of my car, but we tend to put things there and forget they're there, don't we? And some Christians really have relegated the Bible to the boot of the car. You get it out occasionally, but it doesn't really play any important part in our lives, and that's why we're so weak and why our Christianity seems so unreal to us. Uh, sometimes it might be in the back seat, you know, um, back seat people can be a bit of an irritation and sometimes when you read the Bible you sort of think, hmm, I'd rather not know that. But I think in many Christians' lives the Bible's in the passenger seat. I think, you know, if you're driving the car, it, the Bible sort of, well, it, it performs a sort of sat-nav function, really. Um, it's, uh, it, it, it guides you, it directs you in particular ways and if you think of a human sat-nav, somebody who can read a map who's sitting next to you uh, in a car, that can be very useful. They can give you instructions. You can have an interesting conversation with them. But I want to suggest to you that really the Bible deserves to be in the driver's seat. That is to say, it ought to be driving our lives. Why do I say that? Not because I'm a bibliolater worshipping the Bible, but because if the Bible is the word of the living Christ, then if the Bible is in the driver's seat of my life, Jesus will be in the driver's seat. In fact, the way in which Jesus demonstrates that he is in the driver's seat is, how, is through his word, and by that word, directing and enabling and guiding my life. So I've got to give it priority. That's what I'm saying, really. Um, you'll never really grow that much as a Christian if all your Bible study is just on the backstroke occasionally or even if it's just a dialogue between you and the Bible. You see, the authority of the Bible demands that the Christ who gave it by his Spirit 
should be driving our lives because he's our saviour and our Lord. And that the Bible therefore needs to dictate the way in which I think about things because that's the way Jesus thinks about things. He's revealed that to me. If he's my Lord, then I want to know how I can live for him in this world. And the 66 books of the Bible are the great way in which he's revealed that to us. But our danger is that we impose our framework on it. So even when the Bible's in the driver's seat, some way, sometimes we can negate its effect because we all have a framework that we bring to it. And sometimes our framework conditions the way we hear and receive what the Bible says. I mean, I think of it like this pair of glasses. You are now extremely fuzzy because they're reading glasses. But at this moment, I see everything through these lenses. They are my framework. When I take the framework off, it's a different perspective. And so it is with the Bible, you see, that you come to the Bible with a framework. Your framework is 21st century, London, whatever your age group is, whatever your background is, whatever your primary concerns are in life. You've got a unique framework. Everybody has their own framework. You can't come to the Bible without a framework. There's no way you can come to it as a sort of um, un, uh, you know, an unwritten page, as it were. It's, it's there, and we will look at it through our lenses. But the danger is that then we condition the Bible because of our framework. So we say, well, I'll accept that, but of course, being a 21st century London person, I can't really accept that bit. Um, uh, so I begin then to sort of pick and choose which bits I want. And I have my own personal framework that then accepts some things and doesn't accept others. How do we overcome that? Well, we have to keep on questioning our framework from the Bible. If we accept that the Bible is the ultimate authority that God has given us, the ultimate revelation of the infinite personal God, as we saw in point one, then clearly my framework cannot control him. He's got to control my framework. I've got to find my framework being adjusted and changed because through the Bible, I'm learning that God's ideas are a little bit different from mine. Now, how am I going to get down to doing it properly then? Let me suggest to you there are three stages. Firstly, there's the exegesis, which is a fancy word for simply leading out the meaning of the passage. It's a technical term that the Bible scholars all use. The exegesis asks the question, what does this text say? It means you have to observe it carefully. It means that you need your mind to be in gear and you just have to listen to it and think about it and find out the truth that this particular text, maybe one verse, maybe a paragraph, maybe a whole chapter, that you can use different lengths of unit, but whatever the unit is, you're trying to exegete the meaning because the Bible does have an intended meaning. There is an authorial intention because God has inspired it. It doesn't mean that we can always find it out immediately. And it doesn't mean that we'll all necessarily all agree on everything every time. But the quest is worthwhile because there is an intended meaning that God has inspired the text to convey. So I would want to start by saying, so what does this text say? I usually jot down surprises and difficulties that I find in the text. And uh, I find that as I, I think about those, why does he say it like this? I wouldn't have said that. 
why does he put it this way? Why does he tell these people this? Why does that follow this? You know, those sorts of questions, the why questions, help you to understand what the text is saying. And that moves you on to the second question, which is, what does the text signify? Now, this takes you to another layer, you see, another level. And it moves from the mind, which is cognitive, in understanding the meaning of the text, to the heart, which needs to respond to the truth of the text, to receive it into the innermost citadel of my life. Do you remember how Psalm 97 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. The big danger when I study the Bible is that I'll harden my heart. And all I have to do to harden my heart is understand it and do nothing about it. Uh, understand this is what the text says, but I don't want it to signify anything for me. And my heart will just become hard as a result of that. It's a very easy human process because I'm a sinner. So my heart will very readily and easily harden. That's why I ask the Holy Spirit to soften my heart so that every time I read the Bible, I'm praying that the Lord will grant me a softened heart that I'll receive the message and benefit from it. You know, if you're filling in one of those life insurance forms, they often say, don't they, do you indulge in any hazardous pursuits? And uh, they're thinking about bungee jumping and flying glider planes and scuba diving and things like that. You should put down studying the Bible because it is a hazardous pursuit. You never come out of it the same. Your heart either softens or hardens every time. So it is quite hazardous in that sense. You're not just sort of playing games with God. If we are, then we shall realize that God will outplay us every time. If we're really serious about what he says, then we'll want to find out what does it signify for my heart. And that will lead us thirdly to the application. What must I do in response? This is the challenge to the will. How am I going to react to what I've heard? This determines whether my heart hardens or softens. You could say that the application is the pastoral intention of the passage. Why was it written here? What is its benefit to us? The Bible says it was written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. So ask the question, what is the purpose of this passage? So we've got three questions we're asking. Firstly, the surface meaning, what does the text say? Work it out in your mind, what's he saying? Then the exposition at the lower level, the deeper level, what does the text signify? What's the significance for us? Why is this here and what is its implication? And then what response then do I need to make as my will is challenged by what the Bible says? The sort of response would be, I need to believe the promises of God or I need to obey the commands of God. Very simple responses, but very important. I mean, if we read the promises and don't believe them, we harden our hearts. If God commands us to do something and we refuse, we harden our hearts. It is a hazardous pursuit. We either come out of it stronger or weaker as Christians, but of course, if we respond positively, then by believing the promises, obeying the commands, trusting the Lord, uh, going forward in whatever he is uh, leading us to through his word, we can begin to develop that personal relationship with God deeper, trusting more, stronger day by day. 
And the important thing is that the purpose of the Bible is then being worked out in our lives. It's profitable. It's growing us. It's strengthening us. And we're getting to know God better because the Bible is God teaching us about God. One last thought here, the importance of contextualization, because it is, of course, very easy for people to lift something out of one sentence in the Bible and then sort of carry it across to the 21st century and say, well, this has to be literalistically carried out. There's a famous uh, occasion, I mentioned it the other day at the Burning Man talk, about um, that verse that says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, if you take that and put it straight into the 21st century, it could be, in some circumstances, quite misunderstood if Christians went around kissing one another all the time. Greet one another with a holy kiss. When, um, in the 1950s, the first modern English paraphrase was written by an Anglican vicar uh, called J.B. Phillips, who was really quite a traditional sort of conservative English gentleman, he paraphrased it, a hearty handshake all round. Now, what he was doing was moving the cultural expression into a different cultural expression, perfectly valid, because in terms of, not in terms of translation, but in terms of paraphrase valid, because, you see, what he was saying was that the, the holy kiss in some cultures would still be recognized for what it is. But in our culture, certainly in the 50s and 60s, it would have been severely misunderstood. But the mark of fellowship and openness and friendship was a hearty handshake. Now, we do have to do that work. We can't just assume that all the cultural references of the first century or earlier will automatically convey to the 21st. But please hear me on this. When we move from them then to us now, what we are not at liberty to do is to change the principle, the teaching. What we're looking for is the cultural application that makes sense to us now. So if in the famous passage in 1 Corinthians 11 where the women are to cover their heads, that most scholars think is a sign of a Christian wife in the Corinthian culture um, following the normal mark of a respectable married woman covering her head in that culture would be the mark. So that the gospel is not caused uh, to be a stumbling block by people thinking <clears throat> that these new Christians were actually completely immoral and rejected marriage. And the equivalent would not be that every woman in church should cover her head, but that a married woman may well want to wear a wedding, a wedding ring as a sign of her marriage. It's a different cultural expression of a principle that is the same. So the importance of contextualization. You see, people say, don't they, you can make the Bible mean anything. And you can if you take it out of context. I mean, I could show you a page in my Bible where it says there is no God there on the page there is no God but the t context says the fool has said in his heart there is no God Psalm 14 verse 1 so obviously it's a silly example at one level but people do it all the time they they get bits out of somewhere they don't contextualize them and then they say the Bible says so there is a proper discipline of contextualization but if you follow those three lines of exegesis exposition and application, I think you'll find that it opens up the passage to you. And what do we discover? Let me very briefly spend my last five minutes or so on this. We've, we discover that the Bible is a chronological, cumulative revelation. Through the history of Israel 
and through the history of the Christian church, at least the early history, which is covered in uh, the Acts of the Apostles and in the Apostolic Epistles. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that it's constructed on a chronological basis. So the 39 books of the Old Testament take us from the time of Moses. They're usually called the books of Moses, the first five books. That's around 1300 B.C. to around 400 B.C., which is the time of the last prophet Malachi. And the early history of mankind that we'll look at next week in those first 11 chapters is the foundation of everything that follows. Then from Genesis 12 through to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, we have the story of Abraham and the Exodus up to the death of Moses. And this seedbed of the Bible, those first five books, which often uh, is thought to have had mosaic authorship, certainly it was, um, it was a part of the Bible that was written in the time of Moses because of its eyewitness accounts of what happened that becomes the sort of foundation on which the rest is built. And then the chronology goes on with the conquest of the promised land under Joshua, the decline under the judges, the fact that they eventually demand a king, they get Saul, who is a failure, but then the golden age of the monarchy, David, and his son Solomon, the wise. And yet after Solomon's reign, the division of the kingdom into a northern kingdom of the ten tribes, the southern kingdom of Judah and Benjamin, and a story of decline then over hundreds of years, the north eventually falling to the Assyrians when the capital city Samaria was conquered, and the south falling eventually to the Babylonians when Jerusalem fell in the year 589. Then you have the story of the exile and of the return from exile. The exile is, of course, Daniel, Ezekiel, and God's overruling in their history to bring them back to the land, to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, and the final prophets of the Old Testament, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, ministering in that post-exilic context. So there is a chronological run all the way through the Old Testament. It all fits together along that timeline. Then you have 400 years, which we call the intertestamental period, when there is no direct revelation the time of the Greek Empire, Alexander the Great and so on, and then of the Roman Empire until the New Testament begins with the coming of the Lord Jesus, with his earthly life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, the promise of his return, and the spread of the gospel through the apostolic witness around the Mediterranean world. So that's one way of seeing how the Bible fits together chronologically. Please notice the word cumulative, because it means that the later revelation interprets the earlier revelation. Not that the earlier revelation is deficient in any way, it's still the word of God, but as the timeline opens up and you see it more and more clearly, what comes later helps you to understand what was there earlier. Another way of looking at it is through the variety of genres and themes in the Bible. So the Bible has all sorts of different writing, narrative, poetry, prophecy, apocalyptic writing, um, uh, all sorts of things, parables, commandments, proverbs, wisdom, lots and lots of genres of the Bible. That's a great way to study it according to the style of writing and according to the themes that come through because um, we begin to see that the Bible is not just put together chronologically but thematically. 
So the rabbis had a threefold division of the Old Testament. They talked about the law, the prophets, and the writings. And Jesus uses that division in Luke 24 when he's instructing the disciples about post-resurrection, about what they're to do. The law is those first five books. Then there are the prophets. They divided them into the former prophets that we call the history books from, say, Joshua to two kings, and the latter prophets, who are what we call the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the minor prophets, shorter prophets. And then they had the writings, of which Psalms was the chief book, but many other books like Esther and Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and Song of Solomon and so on. So they looked at it thematically. First the law, then the prophets, and then the writings that expounded the message of the prophets in practical, everyday life terms. But probably for us as Christians, the most helpful way of looking at the Bible as a whole, the bird's eye view, is to see it as a consistent theological meta-narrative. Now, meta-narrative is just the overarching story from beginning to end. And it is consistent and it is theologically governed with Christ as the center and Christ as the key. I just referred to Luke 24 where Jesus says, all that was written in the Old Testament about me has to be fulfilled. He is the key that opens and unlocks the meaning of the Old Testament for us. And when you look at it that way and think of it as one book, as well as the 66 books, as it were, you begin to see how the theological development of the Bible is, is absolutely fascinating. Um, it, it, it's presented as a salvation history with promise from the very beginning and fulfillment at the very end. The fulfillments come all the way through in various stages, but the promise at the beginning with the fall of man is that there will be a deliverer who will come, who will crush the serpent's head. And eventually, of course, at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, the lamb on the throne is ruling the universe and the devil, that ancient serpent, is cast into the lake of fire. And as you follow themes, all sorts of different themes through, you find that there is a consistent theological narrative and Jesus is the center of it all. It's always pointing towards the Lord Jesus. He is the fulfillment of it all in himself. And he is the one who gives to us the understanding of how the promises of God have come to their fruition in Christ. But it's also presented, lastly, in terms of covenant and in terms of kingdom. Because this God is building a commitment to his people all the way through. He makes his promises and he keeps his promises. And right from the earliest time in the Bible, God goes on oath making covenant promises to Noah, for example, that he's going to rescue him through the flood, especially to Abraham, those great covenant promises in Genesis 12. He makes promises to the nation at Sinai. If you will follow me and observe my commands, you will be my treasured possession. He makes promises to David, that his descendants will reign on the throne of God forever, fulfilled, of course, in Jesus, great David's greatest son. And all of these promises come to their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. All the way through, God is saying, I will be your God, you will be my people. And then when the New Testament verse open, you find it's not just the ethnic sons of Abraham, not just the Jewish people who have this opportunity, but the whole Gentile world is open. 
when Jesus died on the cross and the temple veil was wrenched down from the top to the bottom, it was as though God was tearing it aside and saying to all the world, you can come in now because my promise has been fulfilled. And that meta-narrative runs all the way through Scripture. The Holy of Holies is open to everyone who repents and believes the gospel. And the covenant is made with us by the king. God's people are therefore under God's kingly rule. They are in the land that God has given to them, though they lose it in the Old Testament. But we are, of course, reminded of the heavenly Jerusalem and the eternal uh, uh, kingdom to which we're making our pilgrimage. And so you get this development from Eden, which gets lost, to the land of promise, which looks so promising but gets lost, to the gospel kingdom, which is in the hearts of men and women wherever they turn to Christ, uh, to the, um, the new kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells and in which if we are God's people, we shall share uh, forever. So these big unifying themes are enormously important in the Bible. And again, you know, it's a great way of understanding the Bible better. Now, I put on the, um, on the sheet some questions that you may like to think about uh, in your groups. May I just say before we turn to groups that this book, which came out last year, I really have been very impressed by and would like to recommend to you. It's not a very long book, but it's a very useful book. It's called Why Trust the Bible by Greg Gilbert, and uh, it's published by Crossway, readily available here, published in the States, but easy to get. Uh, here through Christian bookshops, Amazon, etc. It's quite well known. And it's a book that covers what I've not covered tonight about manuscripts and about how we can rely on the text and can we really be certain that it hasn't been adulterated and changed and all those things. There's a lot of technical scholarship about that around. He puts it all into about 100 pages that's very readable and very well researched and well documented. So if you want a book on that aspect of why trust the Bible, I really do commend that. That's what it's called, Why Trust the Bible, Greg Gilbert, published by uh, Crossway. And um, he says at the end, towards the end, this is the ground that he covers, despite the fact that we face questions at every turn, we've been able to come to a high degree of historical confidence that the Bible really is reliable. Our translations are correct, the copies we have are faithful reproductions of the originals, or at the very least, they allow us to reconstruct the originals. The documents we're looking at are the best and correct ones. The authors themselves weren't dupes or deceitful or writers of fiction. They were telling us what they really believed happened. And finally, we have very good reason to believe that what they thought happened and what they said happened really did in fact happen. The miracles they recount can't be ruled out in principle, and their plausibility far surpasses any other historical accounts of supernatural happenings. Above all, when it comes to the most important miracle of all, the resurrection of Jesus, no explanation really makes sense of all the evidence other than it happened. If Jesus was really resurrected from the dead, then the Bible is the word of God. Well, lots of good stuff like that in it. I do commend it to you. So in our discussion, let's think for a little while and then we'll come back together uh, for, for some Q&A on these two questions. Or do feel free to go off on things that are more relevant to you, but these are starters. Why do you have confidence in the Bible as the written word of God? What is it that persuades you? Or are there areas of doubt or difficulty, things that you 
find, um, you know, constantly undermine that conviction. And then stemming from that, how would you try to convince a friend that the Bible is worth careful reading? Because I've discovered evangelistically that if you can get someone to read a gospel with you, makes huge steps forward in their understanding what Christianity is all about. But how would you try to get them to read a gospel? What is it about the Bible that you would want to share with someone? Now, you might like to uh, look at some verses, go back to our 2 Peter 1, go back to 2 Timothy 3. Uh, you might like to look at the bit in Hebrews 4, uh, verse 12, about the power of the Bible, Hebrews 4, 12. You, you probably think of other verses as well. But um, we're, we're sort of, uh, should we do this for about 15 minutes? Um, Tim, is that, is that okay? Where's Tim? Tim's here. Uh, I'm in your uh, hands on the timing. Yeah, no, very good. David,